Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. As we move forward in our study of Revelation, we're going to see references to a character known as the Antichrist. The obvious Antichrist is Satan himself, who stands against God and his Christ and who opposes those who belong to Jesus. He's been at work through many individuals over the years, such as the Roman Emperor Nero, who brought great suffering and persecution to the early church. And before him, there was Antiochus Epiphanes, a cruel Greek leader who opposed God and sought to destroy God's people in the time between the Old and the New Testament. However, there is one known as the Antichrist who is yet to come, according to Daniel's prophecy and Jesus' own words in Matthew 24. The book of Revelation paints a stunningly detailed portrait of him. To help us make sense of it all, I thought that it would be helpful for us to begin our lesson today by gathering together what other passages of Scripture reveal about this individual. There are not many references to the Antichrist in the Gospels. The only real occurrence is in the chapters where Jesus speaks about the signs of the end in Matthew 24, Mark 13 and Luke 21. The rest of the New Testament, though, does have more to say about him. One of the main pictures of the Antichrist is that of the man of sin found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. There, in verse 3, Paul warns them that in an age of increasing lawlessness and rebellion, the man of lawlessness or sin will be revealed. He is the one, Paul says, is doomed to destruction. The apostle cautions in verse 4 of that chapter that the Antichrist will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And in verse 6 and 7 of 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that there was something restraining the secret power of lawlessness, an entity or an influence that would eventually be removed. When that restraint is lifted, Satan's agents will then rise to power, with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. The idea of the Antichrist also arises in the letters of John. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have already come. He knew that there had already been many who'd worked against God and his people. However, there is a final Antichrist who is yet to come. As we come to these next chapters of Revelation, we will learn much about this key individual as he works to lead mankind astray through the spirit of falsehood and deceit. In our last lesson, 
John took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. Though it was as sweet as honey in his mouth, it brought great bitterness as he digested the message from God that it contained. It seems that the scroll may have contained the overview of the rest of Revelation, and John begins to write it down in chapter 11, which is said to be both the most difficult and at the same time the most important chapter of Revelation. John begins with a very broad sketch of what is to come, first speaking of what he refers to as the temple of God. Chapter 11, verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Before we look at this in detail, it's important for us to realize that John identifies this place on the map when he refers to the holy city in verse 2, for that is scripture's title for Jerusalem. John is given a reed, which was an instrument used for measuring, and measuring something was always seen as a symbol of ownership. Typically, the owner would have something measured before it was destroyed or before it was restored or built. John is told to go and measure the temple of God. Some believe that this indicates that the Jewish temple on earth, which was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, will be rebuilt before Jesus' return, thus restoring worship for the Jews. We'll see something more about this in a moment. And though that may be likely, there is another way of looking at this. It is possible that John has spiritualized this picture and instead of marking a physical building in Jerusalem, God is placing his sign of ownership upon his followers there. According to this idea, the temple is a symbol for those who believe in Christ at that time. This could be possible because believers are often likened to a building or a temple. Peter declared in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that believers are like living stones built into a spiritual house. Paul told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 2 Corinthians 6.16 that as believers in Christ, we are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in us. He also taught the church at Ephesus that those who are built on the foundation of Christ are joined together by God to, and I quote, become a holy temple in the Lord. Could this measuring of the temple be a symbol of God's ownership upon his people who are alive at that time? Possibly. After all, we did see in chapter 7 that God marks his servants with his seal of ownership to protect them through the terrible time of trial. If that is so, then the word Gentile used here would not refer to non-Jewish people as in other places in Scripture. It would rather designate those who are not measured, meaning those who do not belong to God. 
Notice it is these Gentiles, these unmeasured ones, that are the ones who will trample on Jerusalem for 42 months. Though God's people are also there and are known to him, those who do not belong to him hold power in Jerusalem, and their destructive influence is felt for 42 months. But even so, God's voice is not silenced because he sends two witnesses to earth to speak his message. These two witnesses for God will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. The first thing we notice here is that God gives them power to prophesy for 1,260 days. How long is that, though, in terms we can more easily grasp? In prophetic scripture, months are always 30 days long. So if you divide 1,260 days by 30, you have 42 months. And we've seen that figure. We've learned that the holy city is going to be trampled underfoot for 42 months. Interestingly, 42 months is three and a half years or half of a seven year period, which is another figure we've come across before. In Daniel's prophecy concerning the seven years prior to the return of Christ, something significant happens at the halfway point, which is three and a half years. The question is whether the witnesses speak for the first three and a half years or the second three and a half years of the tribulation. And people have different opinions about that, for it is really not clear. What matters is, though, that these two witnesses will declare the truth of God's word for part of the tribulation. As we look at what John declares concerning that time, we must bear in mind another part of the prophecy given to Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, God's prophet refers to an end-time world leader who we later come to know as the Antichrist, warning that he, meaning the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Daniel's prophecy focused on what would be happening to his own people Israel, and God warned them that a covenant or a peace treaty will be signed with many for one seven. In other words, the Antichrist will sign a treaty bringing peace between Israel and her enemies for seven years. But something happens. In the middle of the seven, we're told that the Antichrist will put an end to sacrifice and offering. In order to put an end to sacrifice and offering, it seems logical to some that during this time the Jewish sacrificial system has been reinstated and the Jews were once again worshipping God as they had in the past. However, those sacrifices can only be offered in a physical temple. So it seems that the temple must have been rebuilt as part of the peace accord for this to happen. According to Daniel, in the middle of the seven, in other words, at the three and a half year point 
After 42 months or 1,260 days, the Antichrist will put a stop to their worship and will set up the abomination that causes desolation on Temple Mount. As we saw earlier in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it is at that point that he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Jesus also warned of this event in Matthew 24, verse 15, and urged at that time that those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. It also says that they should pray that this does not occur on a Sabbath, underscoring the fact that the events of these times are really focused on the Jewish people. So as the Antichrist grows in power, the two witnesses begin to speak out in Jerusalem. Filled with God's spirit and clothed in sackcloth as a symbol of mourning and repentance, they speak God's message to the people of the earth, warning them of the wrath to come. One may wonder why God would send two witnesses, but this is actually very important. In Jewish law, two witnesses are necessary to confirm that a testimony is valid. God was making it absolutely clear to the entire world that these witnesses were speaking his truth. John gives us more details about these two individuals in verse 4 of Revelation 11, saying, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Other prophets, such as Zechariah, also had visions of lampstands and olive trees. And in Zechariah 4.14, the prophet identified them as two anointed individuals who stand representing God himself. Now, was Zechariah specifically speaking of these two witnesses? We cannot be sure, but some scholars believe the olive trees and the lampstands indicate the identity of these two individuals as Jewish Christ followers. The olive tree and the lampstand are both familiar symbols in Scripture. We've already seen in Revelation that the lampstands are the churches, those who worship and serve Christ. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that his followers should be like lights placed on lampstands, not hidden away under baskets. The olive tree is also often used in scripture as a symbol for the Jewish people. So it seems then that these two Jewish men, filled with the Holy Spirit like lampstands, are holding out the light of Christ in that dark place. And they're protected by God. For, verse 5 tells us, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, we can't speak with clarity about what is actually going on here, but it is obvious the two witnesses are operating in the power of God. 
are operating in the power of God under his divine protection and no one can harm them. Some believe that they're the Old Testament figures of Elijah and Enoch returned to the earth. Both of those prophets were caught up to God without experiencing physical death first. Elijah was carried away in a famous chariot of fire as his uh, friend Elisha watched. And the scriptures simply say that Enoch walked with God and he was not. They did not die as other men, but others believe that the two witnesses are in fact Elijah and Moses. You will remember that Moses died on Mount Nebo, but no one witnessed his death or his burial. So his was not a normal passing either, like Elijah and Enoch. But there is another observation that may support this position. Look at what John says that these two are able to do. John first says that fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies, and also that they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. Elijah was said to have operated in like manner. Elijah prayed and God shut up the heavens so that it would not rain as a judgment upon the wicked. John mentions in verse 6 that the two witnesses also have this power to shut up the heavens while they are prophesying. Then Elijah also defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel by calling down fire from heaven to consume his sacrifice to God. Not only that, but later on when a different king, King Ahaziah, sent a detachment of soldiers to arrest Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 verses 9 through 10, fire fell from heaven and killed them all. The angry king immediately sent another group of 50 men, and the same thing happened a second time in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 11 through 15. In this case, all who tried to harm Elijah came to this fiery end. John also reveals of these two witnesses that they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. This is what Moses did when he turned the water of the Nile to blood and brought about other plagues on Egypt to prove that the gods that they worshipped were false. We've seen Moses and Elijah together already in Scripture. They appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 when the glory of the Lord transformed Christ in front of his three disciples who were with him on the mountain. Afterwards, the disciples asked Jesus, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? This was a common Jewish teaching that Elijah would appear again before the end of all things. Jesus didn't answer the why, but he did confirm that indeed Elijah would come at the restoration of all things, which was an obvious reference to the time of Christ's second coming. It's very clear that Elijah is strongly associated with events of end times. But whoever the witnesses may be, they speak for God and they're able to do miraculous signs and they have God's protection for a while.
John describes what happens next in verse 7. Now, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Notice John is very clear that their work for God is complete. It's only when they finish their testimony that they're overpowered and killed. In passing, I want you to note that this is the first mention of the beast in Revelation. This is the name given to the Antichrist, the major opponent of God's people in the final days. He is a man, an evil politician or ruler who's linked closely with the abyss and who is controlled by Satan himself. We'll learn more about him soon. The beast is allowed to kill the two witnesses and we learn in verse 8, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. There are several important truths to notice. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, and that city is where also their Lord was crucified. Jesus was crucified just outside the walls of Jerusalem, and so it's clear that this is the great city to which John refers. The fact that John reveals Jesus as their Lord makes it very clear that these two Jewish prophets, these olive trees, know Christ as their Messiah. It may be surprising to some of us that John refers to Jerusalem as figuratively being called Sodom and Egypt, but this is not the first time Jerusalem has been referred to in that way. Long before this, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 9 to 10 had addressed the rulers of Jerusalem as the rulers of Sodom and the people of Jerusalem as the people of Gomorrah. Sodom was a place of depravity and immorality and Egypt was a place of slavery. Speaking of Jerusalem in this way symbolizes the city's great wickedness in the Lord's sight. His holy city was no longer holy. Once the witnesses have been put to death, God reveals to John that for three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. I find this fascinating because I realize that when Revelation was taught even a hundred years ago or less, people would have found it impossible to believe how people from every tribe, language or nation would be able to gaze on these prophets' bodies. Of course, now with satellite television, the internet and social media, people can see world events in real time. The whole world would easily know about their deaths the moment they happened, but the horror would drag on. The prophets' lifeless bodies lie there in the street for three and a half days and are refused burial. In many cultures, but especially Middle Eastern ones, there is no greater sign of disrespect than to leave a body unburied. It is an expression of complete and utter contempt. In fact, verse 10 says the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. 
So the inhabitants of the earth, those who oppose God and who follow the beast, celebrate Dead Prophets Day. Having been tormented by the prophet's message, they even send each other gifts because of the offending witnesses finally having been silenced. However, their celebrations are premature. Verse 11, But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. So the Antichrist's victory over God's messengers is short-lived indeed. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered again into these two slain ministers. They stand up on their feet, and in sight of all of the gloating mobs, they are summoned to heaven, reenacting, as it were, Elijah's first departure to heaven in the glory cloud of God and the chariot of fire. The people of the earth have little time to comprehend what they see, for at that same hour a huge earthquake strikes the city of Jerusalem. John declares that as a result, tenth, a tenth of the city collapsed and that 7,000 people are killed in the massive earthquake. At this, the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. With this, the second woe is now past, and the third is coming quickly. In verse 15, John begins to forecast the final events to come. As the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, the final woe is unleashed upon those who follow the Antichrist. By contrast, however, this same blast brings praise and worship in heaven among all those who worship the Lamb. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has come, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign for ever and ever. And at this, the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Notice how the elders address the Lord as they worship him, not only as Lord God Almighty, but also as the one who is and who was. We can't miss the significance of that. Previously, in Revelation 4, all of heaven worshipped God as the one who was and who is and who is to come. But now there is no mention of him as being the one who is to come. Why? Because he's here. He's already come and he has begun to reign. And how do the earthly nations react? Did they join in that worship? Verse 18, the nations were angry 
and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. God's wrath has finally come in response to their sin. John speaks of two different groups of people in verse 18 when he says that the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding God's servants. The dead here are the spiritually dead, those earth dwellers who do not belong to Christ. They will be judged while the second group, God's servants, the prophets and his saints, both small and great, will be rewarded. John sees a vision of the heavenly temple opened and he sees the Ark of the Covenant within it. Christ fully opened the way into God's presence by his death and resurrection. And God's image here is a picture of the coming of God in all his glory, which is at the same time a terrifying threat to his enemies and the long-awaited fulfillment of his promise to his people. Again, John mentions the flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, the earthquake and the hail, all of which are pictures of God's judgment. In our next lesson, we'll begin to look at Revelation 12, 13 and 14, which are like another large aside or pause in the course of end time events. These coming chapters will reveal more of the ongoing work of Satan over the ages and will help us to see the remaining earthly events from a heavenly perspective. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for all that you've said to our hearts today. And though not all of our questions are answered now, we thank you that there will be a day in heaven where we stand before you and see you face to face and will know all these things fully, even as we are fully known. Thank you so much for Jesus, our protector and our saviour. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.